0: Welcome to Living the Dream, a hospitality podcast from La Dame Descoffier, New York. I'm Penny Stankowitz, an entrepreneur, sugar artist, and chef, and a generally curious storyteller. Each week, we bring you stories and insights from personalities in the world of hospitality. Chefs, publicists, writers, and creators share what it takes to build success. Whether you're in the early stages of your career and looking for a how-to guide, or you're an established pro looking to sharpen your superpowers, We lift the veil on the industry to give you an honest, practical guide to building a career in life you love. Joy Cho was my student at the Institute of Culinary Education. She would bring me cakes and things to try, and as a chef, nothing makes me happier than tasting other people's food, especially when it's good and with joy it always was. She's thoughtful, talented, and it was pretty obvious that she was going to do well in the world. Our stories have a lot of similarities, we're both career changers, so I can relate to everything she's going through. What's next is a big question for us both. Unlike some of the other guests I've had on the show, Joy is much closer to the beginning of her career, and yet already she's gone through some significant transitions. She sheds a light on what it really takes to make a career and a product that people gravitate towards. We start our conversation with tasting notes from Fan Fan Donuts. LaDombe-Scoffier, or LDNY, has at its core, the principle of opening doors for people just like Joy. Here are Sharon Frank and Jill Orent to talk about the cornerstone of LDNY's work, scholarships.
1: I'm Jill Orent. I am one of the co-chairs of the LDNY Scholarship Committee. I'm just about to begin my second term. I'm one of the newer members of LDNY, so I really feel privileged to be part of scholarship.
2: I'm Sharon Frank. I'm Jill's co-chair of Scholarship, and I'm also the immediate past president of La Dame de New York. And Scholarship really is at the heart of our organization because it's the chief way that we help other women who are Coming up in our worlds of food, beverages, and hospitality. It's a big responsibility to be a co chair of scholarship because we're really having a direct effect on people's lives and also affecting the finances of the organization and and other people and organizations that are donating money to us. So it's something we take very seriously and also feel honored to be able to do. We're supported by a committee of eight other DOMs that includes diverse mix of older DOMS and newer and younger DOMS so that we get different perspectives on the candidates that we choose.
1: Scholarship is really the most important part of the organization. Our objective is to help identify and support rising stars and potential leaders in the food and beverage industry. You know, we've had the privilege this past year of selecting 16 winners of scholarships across different areas, a very diverse group of of wonderful women. We take into consideration merit, community service, diversity, and need in making our selections along with our committee members. We donated across the scholarships, almost $80,000 in scholarships across our nine partner schools.
2: We partner with with eight schools and one organization. Of all our scholarships, one of the ones that really touches my heart the most is the CCAP student. They are younger, but they still speak very eloquently about what the scholarship means to them. Since 1977,
1: when this program
2: began, we've awarded
1: over 1,000 women scholar, have received our scholarships, and the dollar amount was over $2 million that has been awarded to those women. So that's a pretty incredible number of not only dollars, but students, women that were really impacted by the strength of what LDNY has to offer.
2: And then every scholarship winner is also offered the opportunity to have a mentor from within our organization. We try to encourage long-term relationships, and ideally, we would like to the students who win scholarships eventually become doms. I mean, the organization is composed of women who are leaders in their field, and when we are granting the scholarships, we're really looking for people that we think will be leaders as their career progresses and we're also looking for a mix so we give scholarships in different areas we give some to hospitality some to beverages some to cooking some to pastry there's various scholarships that are identified for different purposes. There's two that are particularly interesting. One is the Carol Brock scholarship. And as, you know, listeners of this podcast have heard, Carol Brock is a remarkable woman who founded LDNY. And we are giving a scholarship in her name to an NYU student. Um, Carol herself got her master's at NYU. And so we've identified that school. In addition, there's a Latwala scholarship, which is for $20,000, which is a huge amount and an amount that can make a real difference in someone's life. And the money for that scholarship comes from an anonymous donor, and we're particularly careful about choosing that winner. It was named Toile by the donor, and Toile means star in French, and it was really designed to be for a star, somebody who's a rising star, somebody who has real potential to make a difference in the industry. But I would say in general, when we're trying to select our winners, we're looking, of course, at their GPA, at how well they've done in school. We're looking at their references. But we also spend a lot of time looking at what their career goals are and what community service they've done. So we're really looking for people who have some experience in the field and people that have given back, have already given back, have shown a commitment to to helping the community. That's something that really impresses us and helps us to make a decision that this person deserves the scholarship. So it's a balance. It's not, you know, strictly an academic score, but who is this person and why is she worthy?
1: And we also have some of the scholarships that we have which are for specific purposes or defined for specific goals and objectives, such as somebody that is specifically focused on baking and pastry arts or hospitality management, and those things are taken into consideration when selecting from those specific scholarship recipients.
2: We also encourage people, obviously, to donate to our scholarship program, even if it's just a small amount. They can find out how to donate by visiting our website, or they can just reach out to a member who can help them. We also, anytime we have an event, all our events are listed on Eventbrite, but we'll always have a space where they can give a donation. Well, we encourage people to donate through Amazon Smile to scholarship as well, no matter how big or small. So it all adds up.
1: Scholarships, aside from the Lake 12 scholarships that are generously donated by some of our doms, such as Margaret Perry has generously provided scholarships, Abigail Kirsch and Allison Auerbach, and I'm sure I'm missing a few, but you know, those are really important as well. So that's, of course, an opportunity as well for anybody that's interested in really making a specific and larger scholarship donation. There's
2: so many people out there that have won scholarships. And in fact, a few years ago at one of the CCAP receptions, I heard somebody speak, she was the executive chef at Bluestone Cafes. And she was just an amazing speaker and had really raised herself up partly with help from CCAP. And then when I went up to speak to her afterwards, found out that she had also won a LADAM scholarship. So there's lots of remarkable people out there. I would just want to make sure that we thank all of our DOMs who sit on the committee with us and also all of the DOMs who do volunteer to mentor women within the organization. The people that serve on our committee put so much time and energy into it.
1: In addition to which, you know, we're really thoughtful about making sure that we're selecting people that are giving back. And some of these women just What they have contributed already is just so incredible, and it's just not difficult to imagine what they're going to bring in the future.
2: Yeah, you know, our Carol Brock uh, Scholarship winner this year has as a career goal, starting the first, I believe it was African American Food Studies program at Howard University. How great is that as a career goal, and, you know, how happy I was to give money to that woman.
0: Today's treat comes from Fan Fan Donuts, which is the brainchild of Fanny Gerson. And um, we got a lovely selection today. Uh, we picked up two special ones just for you, mango lassi. And the one that I'm really dying to try is the roibus honeycomb. Do you know what rooibos is, Joy? Is it a tea? It is a tea. Have you ever had you, you say it in a way that maybe you haven't had it before.
3: I feel like it's never my first choice of tea. Like, I've seen it on lists, but I never go for it. So I'm excited to try it.
0: I would love to encourage you to because it's incredibly fruity and it almost okay. has an under note of vanilla, like in it naturally. Mm. It's a red tea and it's naturally decaffeinated. So okay. I really like to make iced tea out of it in the summertime.
3: Oh, I like
0: that. Okay. So I didn't even wait for her joy. You can't see, but she's diligently cutting it to be gentle and delicate, <laughs> and me like a monster. I'm just eating. Mm. Oh, I taste the tea. And for sure the honey. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I love about these donuts, Joy? They're salty. And I love a good salty pastry.
3: Yes, same, same. What do you think? I like it. I kind of like how the... I don't know if it's temperature in my apartment, but the glaze on that one is kind of on the wetter side, almost like a caramel, probably from the honey, but I kind of like that.
0: Yeah, I, I see exactly what you mean. The other one has a crisper glaze for sure. So I think you're right. Yeah. I think it's partially the honey. And then our next one, which is the mango lassi. Okay, Joy, you
3: gotta tell me what you taste. I wonder if the lassi part is, don't la- lassies usually have like a yogurt They do. Type. Mm-hmm. So I taste kind of like a tanginess, definitely, along with like the brightness of the mango.
0: Yep. And I also, I think,
3: um, is that cardamom? Are you getting cardamom? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm tasting some kind of spice for sure. Kind of like a softer, warmer spice. I got to do this
0: really incredible thing for a TV show that is going to be airing probably by the time this airs, it'll launch. And Michael Asconis at ICE made this massive tasting menu. So it was wow. 38 different dishes. And I sat there for four hours while oh, just gosh. dish after dish after dish came out. And it was all about, you know, judging your palate, and whether or not you could identify all these things. And it was the most fun that I think I've had in a really long time to just sit there and taste 38 different things one after the oh other. Oh my gosh. Other.
3: Were they all like composed desserts or?
0: No, they were all almost all savory. Some of them, oh. there were a couple of desserts too in there, but it was almost all entirely savory. I like to think that maybe this is what top chef judges get to experience that, you know, sitting there and just eating plate after plate after plate, yeah. mostly delicious and definitely interesting food. Yeah. Oh
3: my gosh. So did you have to like guess any of the Yeah, like, there was did a you lot of it- guessing. Okay.
0: Oh, that's a I won. Fun. joy. I won. I mean, wasn't. Oh no, was surprised. No, <laughs> there was no competition really, but I made it a competition. Shocking. Shocking <laughs> with me. So fun. The d- uh, donuts are delicious. They're the same donut base, which reminds me of your cakes too. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but yeah. the glazes are yummy and they're a little bit unusual and um, I am not mad at mid afternoon donuts. How about you?
3: No, I'm totally on, on board with that. <laughs>
0: Thank you to Fan Fan Donuts for a delicious afternoon snack. Joy Cho, the woman behind the Gem Cake Internet Sensation, is today's featured guest. If you haven't heard of her yet, you and I are not on the same Instagram. Unemployed during COVID, Joy was at the forefront of the home-based bakery trend. After spending most of 2020 baking for fans in Brooklyn and Columbus, Ohio, Joy hit the reset button and introduced her gem cake creations to the world. She's navigated the world of social media fame expertly and launched a pastry career all while the industry was in turmoil. She's been featured in the New York Times, Food and Wine, and Grub Street, and has followed up on the success of her aptly named Cakelets by pursuing food writing. Her articles have been featured in Bon Appetit, Food 52, Eater, and Foodnetwork.com. So Joy, tell me, how did your pastry career start?
3: Oh man, so I was working an office job and decided to kind of go to pastry school as an exploratory thing. So I, I didn't go into pastry school thinking I would change careers at all. I just knew that I liked to bake and while I was Younger and single and untethered in New York, I figured I might as well just try it. And I really feel like my career has been less about like taking these big jumps and more about like these next steps that continue just to surface. And so, as part of my pastry school program where I met Chef Penny, we had to do like an externship. So, working at a restaurant of our choice. And I think that really gave me the real world view into the restaurant world. And I was working seven days a week between externing and my day job, commuting between Manhattan and Brooklyn. And so I think that was a point where I felt I couldn't do both things anymore. And so just choosing what brought me more joy and what brought me more fulfillment. There's a lot of uncertainty in the present, but I was thinking like, oh, my future, what do I want? To orient my future towards. And pastry was definitely the one. Yeah. It,
0: was that a hard choice? For me, it was, right? So I have a, a similar story to you. I was a filmmaker for a really long time. I went to pastry school for fun. I did not intend to change my careers. And then when I got out of school, I just said, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Eventually knowing that one was going to win out over the other, right? Was it a similar approach for you? Did you know one was going to win out or did you make a hard
3: choice? I really did not know which one would win out. I was just kind of like hanging in both things and seeing where things would go. Um, but I think it helps if you don't feel fulfilled at yeah. in the job that is paying the bills, you know? And so there's definitely like a obviously financial risk there. But in terms of fulfillment, that was more of what I was thinking of and more of like the long game. Where can I see my career going towards
0: Did you have to take a financial step back by switching to the food industry at that point?
3: Yeah, in in terms of, I was like living in midtown beforehand and I was like, I can't live here anymore. So yeah, I just had to make some realistic changes about my lifestyle. How do you feel about those changes now? I guess I'm just more used to it now, but I feel like a lot of the people I see on a regular basis are not in the food and pastry world. It's definitely hard, you know, to see my friends living a certain way and knowing that I just can't afford to do that. But it's kind of just my reality now that I've accepted and I know there are other things going for me. And I keep bringing up fulfillment. I know it's very cliche, but feeling a sense of purpose in what I do, I think is just so so valuable, and priceless.
0: Absolutely. It's so important because you can, you can follow the money, but the money only makes you want more money. It's a kind of, exactly. a track, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. was it, it was a conscious intentional choice at a certain point that you weren't happy anymore. And then you made a break. Was did you think that that took a certain amount of courage?
3: I think so. Again, I just, I felt like I was at a point. So I had been at my day job for like a year and a half and I just like really did not feel it anymore. And so I think subconsciously I was looking for an out. Even if I didn't pivot to pastry, I probably would have looked at other job opportunities. So it felt like I was already in a transitional period.
0: How was pastry school for you? Is it something you think was important in your journey?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I've talked to people who have asked me, do I need to go to pastry school to quote unquote make it in the food world? And I find that. Difficult question to answer because I think they it, it's very personal. And for me, I think I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't gone to pastry school. And like, especially just not having restaurant experience close to zero restaurant experience before pastry school and liking to bake at home, but not really knowing what to do with that or just learning the techniques. And even more than that, I think the connections I made with my chef instructors and with career advisors, yeah, just a lot of doors opened in terms of like my externship site and my first job that I think I, that would have been very difficult for me to get to on my own without any institutional support. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it. It was definitely a nice, a different way of thinking than doing my day job. And so I loved like creating and learning and networking and connecting.
0: You know, that makes a lot of sense. Pastry school is a more important environment, I think, for a career changer because you know when you're young and you go to college you meet all of your friends that you're going to be friends with for a while right you start to go mm-hmm. down that path and then when you want to change paths it's very hard to do because you don't have your foot in that door and by going yeah. to pastry school I think it first of all it surrounds you by a bunch of other people who love the things you love which is really mm-hmm. important when your career changing right but then it, it certainly facilitates it opens some doors do you have to go to pastry school to be successful or culinary school. No, you can, you can beg, steal and borrow and get into the door of that kitchen and work really, really hard and find the right mentor Mm -hmm. for you. And you can learn all the technique pretty much elsewhere. But what Mm -hmm. I think it gives you is this sort of luxury of this moment where you can just throw yourself into what you're doing. And when you're career changing, it's very hard, I think, to even if you don't intend to career change per se, like you and I did, we, moved, we were exploring, right? Mm-hmm. But I think when you do that, it, it allows you or it forces you on a schedule to pursue something that you're always going to be too tired for. You're never going to have enough free time to really devote yourself to. And I think it's a good structure for that for sure.
3: Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with the structure thing, especially if you're working another job, these like chunks of time in my week where I'm just thinking about pastry. I think that was really helpful.
0: How did you juggle your externship while you're still working?
3: That was like a really tough summer, honestly. And I think part of my reason to pursue pastry was because I felt like I could not do both things anymore. And I know some people work seven days a week on the regular and I just don't know how they do that, honestly. It was just very disorienting. Like I never felt like I had a moment myself. Also because I was going back and forth between two very different environments. I, I felt never fully present where I was. I was always thinking about, okay, I, go, I have to go back to work tomorrow or I have to go to my externship tonight. So that was really difficult. That was about eight eight or nine weeks, I would say, to meet my 210 hour requirement. Yeah, I'm not sure I could have done it any longer than that. So it was hard. Yeah. Was that
0: then the catalyst that made you realize you had to quit your day job if you wanted to do this?
3: Yeah, I think so.
0: What was your next step after you quit your day job?
3: When I was looking for my externship, I really wanted to be at Gramercy Tavern. I really respect Chef Miro, who's the executive pastry chef there. And just the learning. Culture and environment I wanted to be a part of, but they didn't have space when I was applying to be an extern. And so I kind of kept in contact with Chef Miro and the sous chefs and just trying to see if there are any openings in the future. And there was one opening as I was finishing up my externship. So I really felt like that lined up super well. This must mean something. As my externship is ending, as I'm unhappy in my day job and this position opens up, it just made sense for me to do that switch.
0: What was it like making the switch and then starting your days in the pastry kitchen instead?
3: I mean, we already alluded to kind of the lifestyle changes and it's always a very sad day when over the course of like a few weeks, you kind of see your bank account. (laughs) (laughs) The money stops coming in, you know, as you're used to. Yeah, I kind of jumped right in and I think GT does a really great job of training people correctly it was like drinking out of a fire hose (laughs) I don't think I can do this like I'm not cut out for this I don't know how I how people finish their production list you know in eight hours like it, it just feels impossible I just had to take a step back and be like I'm gonna learn I'm gonna learn the ropes and there's a learning curve with everything and especially with my first real restaurant job it was difficult I felt like I haven't used certain muscles before that I had to use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was like, sore all the time. It was, it was very strange, but I just felt the thirst to learn and get better. And I hadn't felt that kind of motivation in a while.
0: And then that did that pass that feeling of not being able to get it all done in a day?
3: Yeah, it, I still remember like the first day I finished my list by myself without help and without any kind of adjustments to it. That had been my goal. Just finished my list on my own and I would never quite get there. Like first time I got everything done, I felt like I like cracked a code or something. <laughs> But it's, it's just crazy how you learn to become more efficient, I mean, with any job, but like especially with restaurant work, how you work, like how you set up, how you mise en plus all these things, just saving a few minutes here and there. Like it almost became like a game for me. Like I felt like an athlete always trying to beat my PR. So it was very fulfilling the first time.
0: We're going to talk more about what you're doing now, but I imagine that those kinds of skills that you were building at Gramercy Tavern really sort of set the scene for you to be able to go on and do the next things in your life.
3: Yeah, I would totally agree. Like I think what I'm doing now is obviously very different than working in a restaurant, but just in terms of efficiency and strategizing and organization, all those things come into play for sure.
0: For potential listeners who are thinking about where they're going to do their externship and how they're going to build the next stages of their careers, what's your advice to them? What kind of experience should they look for?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I feel like I would say anywhere you extern, even if it's not your first choice, you will learn as much as you want to. And I'm really thankful to have ended up at my externship site, Oxalis, which is a smaller neighborhood bistro in Prospect Heights. They were awarded a star, I think, in 2019. It was like a different environment than GT, like smaller team. I was working directly under. The pastry chef, so it was just me and her. I had eaten there and just really loved their food and cuisine, and I think that's also important work where you really think highly of the food and you think it's interesting and you want to learn there and you're excited about it. I honestly am glad that I did an extern at GT, not because it wouldn't have been a great experience, but I'm glad I was able to pursue a different kind of restaurant and a different kind of team and having that diversity was helpful for me in terms of gaining different experiences. I was a little bummed when GT was like, oh, we don't have space for any more externs, but my experience at Oxalis was was exactly what I needed. So I think a lot of people are very set on restaurant they want to extern at, but I don't think that is the end-all be-all at all.
0: No. And then serendipity comes in. I mean, Joy, your, your story is it parallels mine so much. It's kind of funny, mm-hmm. but I was going to go to craft. I was set to go to craft. And then I called the chef one too many times and suddenly my spot was gone. And so yeah. at the very last minute I had to make another choice and I ended up going to Spice Market which is a genre, which mm-hmm. was it's gone now but it's a Spice Market it was Jean-George von Gerichten and Piché on mm-hmm. and Piché ended up becoming a mentor of mine and he helped me open my bakery and later close my bakery and all the rest of it and that relationship mm-hmm. and what came from that is so much more valuable than maybe whatever experience I would have gotten that now I'll never know the difference. So you're right. Sometimes really just going with the flow. And I really like what you said about tasting the food. I think it's so important. If you're, if you're looking to work somewhere, first of all, or extern someplace, you have to like what they do. You have to want to learn that or be a part of that. And you have to taste the food. Okay. So you're at Gramercy Tavern. You're having a great time. You're learning a lot. You're making beautiful, delicious desserts. What was the work level like for you?
3: A big, like, mental shift, emotional shift as well. Just accepting that okay, my hours are going to be pretty much the opposite of my friends. And I think Grand Mercy Tavern is part of a hospitality group that more common to have like two consecutive days off, which is that's a huge big. blessing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and so depending on what station on pastry you were at, like weekends would differ. They would stagger the weekends, obviously, so they'd always have someone. Yeah, the hours I worked evening shift while I was at GT, and so having my workday start at like four thirty p.m. What do I do until then? You know, <laughs> yeah. and then you know getting home at like one, one fifteen, and crashing, and then doing it again the next day. And so I think I really had to grapple with I don't know just accepting that this is the life that I chose for myself. Sure. Like I can talk about, it's a bummer that I don't have Saturday nights free. Friends do things, I'm missing things, but that's what I had been primed for. Right. I knew what I was getting into and yet there was that adjustment period for sure. And I think just, yeah, I mentioned the physicality of restaurant work. It was very different than pastry school. Right. And yeah, no one in
0: pastry school asks you to lift a 50 pound bag of anything.
3: The first time that like, I had to fill the flour with like a fifty pound bag, I was like, I can't carry this. Like I don't know how to do- like I don't know how to do this. But it's it's just crazy how your body gets so efficient. Those muscles that weren't there develop. And I always tell people, literally, if you want to get toned, just like work like in a pastry kitchen, specifically like with bread, and it'll happen in like right? a month. And it's hot yeah.
0: and so you'll sweat everything off too. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Did you? So I'm just curious when you had to lift that 50 pound bag of flour and you had no idea how to do it, did
3: you ask for help? So my, the person who trained me like owed me how to do it. So I observed her, but obviously that, that was for one week. And then after I had to do it myself. And so I don't think I asked for help, but a sheer willpower. I saw her do it and she can do it. So I can do it too.
0: Is there a culture of asking for help? Is that something that is normally accepted and okay to do in a restaurant kitchen?
3: Um, I mean, I can't speak for every restaurant kitchen, and I i want to say that the culture is changing uh, for the better, hopefully. But I know in the restaurants that I, I was at, I definitely felt comfortable asking for help. And okay. not even, oh, because I couldn't do something, but even, oh, why are we doing it like this? If I was curious about something. Like, I felt like I could talk to the head chef and ask him. I, I thought it was really cool how he would come into the kitchen and show us how to do something, you know, versus just saying it and expecting us to get it. So it was very hands-on, which I appreciated.
0: That's great. Okay. So cut to what was it? What month was it? March, 2020? Mm -hmm. You're
3: working at Gramercy Tavern, March, 2020. Then what happens? So remember the Friday night that uh, we shut down the restaurant, but I mean, at that point, the plan was, I think it was going to be shut for like three or four days. My friends are saying it's, gonna be closed for a while and I I think I I was just like still kind of confused at everything that was happening closing a restaurant even for a few days was a massive ordeal all hands on deck everyone was like packing things we were sent away with a ton of groceries that they couldn't keep you know for a few days yeah Yeah, so that was just very crazy and I actually ended up flying to back home to Ohio where my parents are and the plan was just to well I bought a one-way ticket and was oh I'll just go there for like a few days and so when GT opens next week I'll just pull hmm. it back <laughs> but obviously I ended up staying camping out there for five months
0: all right and what yeah. did you do with your spare
3: time <laughs> yeah I Kind of started just baking. I'm sure a lot of people in the restaurant world can relate to like in times of uncertainty or when we have nothing to do with what do we know how to do, bake or cook or just being in the kitchen. And it definitely helped that my parents have a much bigger kitchen than (laughs) I do in New York. Yeah, just started baking for fun. And then I grew up in Ohio, so I have kind of a network there already. So I kind of just started offering pastries for free after like a few days of that I remember asking my brother do you think people would pay for a pastry delivery every week and so I started trying that out and that kind of picked up and I was I was surprised at how receptive people were and at the beginning my it was my existing family friends who would buy things but by the end of my time my regulars were people I did not know and like It's crazy how fast word travels. And the funny thing is, because it was no contact deliveries back then, I actually don't know what most of my customers look like even. (laughs) I just saw their names on the order form every week, but never really met them. So did you find it was a lot of the same people ordering from you? Yeah, there was definitely a handful of regulars. Yeah.
0: In Ohio specifically, what was the largest number in a week?
3: Largest number?
0: Give think or take,
3: was, yeah. I think it's like fifty boxes or so.
0: That's a lot of boxes. That's a lot of deliveries, yeah. Joy. You were doing the deliveries by yourself too.
3: At the beginning, I was, and I was like, I can't do this. So, so my brother, he's in college and his internship got canceled because of COVID, and so he was also stuck at home. So I kind of hired him to looped him in to help me with deliveries. I would pass off all the boxes and he would map out the route.
0: Very smart business business move. Not doing it all yourself.
3: Very, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Right. bright. Okay. So this is a wild success, right? Are, people are
3: loving what you do. Were you profitable at that point? You know, I don't know because at that point I was just, I don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, I still don't know what I'm doing, but <laughs> no one does. That point, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was not keeping track of any, anything. So I, honestly could not tell you. And I was obviously still paying rent in New York. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Okay, cool. All
0: right. So what made you come back to New York?
3: My lease was ending. So I honestly just kind of wanted to stay in Ohio. I had developed like comfortable rhythm of life. Obviously there's like a lot of space and being with family for a lot of people it was really hard to be in close quarters with family all the time. But for me, it was just really, really nice just having everyone back home again. Yeah, the only reason I went back was because my lease was up. So I had to think about moving and take care of my stuff. I tried to continue the boxes, the pastry boxes in New York. And I knew that things were going to be different, right? Because like the kitchen was a lot smaller. Developing a new client base, that was really scary for me, honestly. Because, it seems like
0: it. I mean, you, you've built yeah. a client base in Ohio, was regular. Mm-hmm. And then starting back here, it's it might be the same thing you're doing, but it's a completely different environment, right? All new people, you have to bring in new people.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was... Definitely a difficult adjustment. And I actually did in-person pop-up for I think a month on the Lower East Side. So I was kind of doing a hybrid of a pop-up, doing savory and sweet there, more like plated things. And then I started tacking on the pastry boxes on a Saturday. Eventually that evolved into, okay, I don't think I could do both the pop-up and the pastry boxes. So just pivoting to just the pastry boxes and negotiating so I could still use the location as a pickup spot. That was what I thought would work better. That was definitely like a learning and adjustment period for sure. Last, last fall,
0: you were exhausted by working seven days a week when you were in pastry school and working, and then you did your externship while you were still working. And that was a lot. Now you are doing these bakery boxes and doing pop-ups. It sounds to me like you're back to seven days a week, but in a different level. Is that, was that the case?
3: I feel like I was definitely thinking about work seven days a week, but I think I consciously wanted to give myself at least a, a day off. And that's still like difficult for me to just fully step away from work or work-related things. Not quite as bad as my extern days, for sure.
0: Okay. How did you this time around get so many clients to make this viable? Was it just the pop-up that started the talk? And did that take off from there? Or did you do something intentionally to cultivate clients?
3: Yeah, I think the pop-up definitely helped. And I think what the pop-up mentions in various media outlets, I think that also helped. I've just been so, you know, tunnel vision with gem cakes that that just feels, it is more recent, but I felt like Jump Cakes is when I really got a regular crew of customers. I think it came out of a lot of anxiety about stability and my own happiness, to be honest. When I came home for Christmas in December, I was just super burnt out. I really was not enjoying what I was doing. And... That kind of fulfillment that I mentioned before, like on the whole, yes, I was doing pastry and I love doing pastry, but the way I was doing it was just really unsustainable and exhausting. And I also felt very directionless in terms of where things were headed. And so when I came back, I actually considered, do I just want to get a stable job? Maybe adjacent to food, but definitely like more typical, a steady income and hours and benefits. What part of you was that, that was thinking
0: about the stable job?
3: I mean, I think when you're, you just feel burnt out and exhausted, you just want something that feels like it wouldn't be as exhausting or difficult. And obviously that that's just, it's almost out of desperation, right? That like, you just want something else, something that'll make things feel better. And I honestly think it was like taking well, first of all, I just like didn't really want to be in the kitchen at all. And that was a scary thought. Why, why do I feel this way? Does this mean that I don't want to create anymore? I don't want to bake anymore? Yeah, I think at the start of 2021, I was like, okay, it's a new year. I'm just going to take some time away. And even that was a very hard decision because... I would see my peers and pastry chefs, other pastry chefs, rolling out new things, running hard after the next milestone. And I was like, I feel so aimless and I feel bad comparing myself, but it's just so easy to do that. Taking a week off from the kitchen and also away from social media, I think was very helpful. And I used that week to just like reach out to people I trusted, like I reached out to you and to another one of my mentors and took walks with friends and just talked to my parents. So it was just a lot of like conversations and it was hard to view those as as a productive use of my time in that moment because it felt like I wasn't accomplishing anything. But looking back, I think that was probably one of the best decisions I made for myself. And I think out of that space and time, I think I realized what I wanted, the direction I wanted to go towards and how I can get there. So I feel like it's, con- you know, a constant journey of figuring things out. I don't think I would have been better off at all just continuing to do what I do because I know how to do it. I needed like a change in course for sure.
0: We all think that, that we just have to keep forcing the problem. If I just yeah. keep sitting here and just keep at it and at it and then I'll figure it out. And sometimes it's really perspective is everything, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when, I, when people are making cakes, I always tell them to take a step back and look at it from a little bit of a distance, because what you see from a distance isn't the same thing as you see up close, you see all the flaws, you see all the, the minutia, and you don't, you miss the beauty, right? And I think mm-hmm. the same thing's true in life. I think we, we just spend too much time up close when really the, the perspective yeah. is really at a distance, right? Totally. So totally. what did that perspective give you?
3: Yeah, I realized that I wanted to create my own product, my own signature product. There were some websites and bloggers that I respect and their recipes are very dependable. So, you know, I would use those and then kind of tweak some things or add things sometimes. And... I realized I wanted something that I could say was entirely mine and that would be meaningful like even if it didn't go anywhere. I think personally it would feel like a personal milestone for me. And I started out by experimenting with I don't know why I I was so interested in using sweet rice flour or glutinous rice flour and at first I had this idea for like mini mochi bites something that you know doesn't have to be a heavy like really dense thing but something that's like easy to eat and light and I could vary the flavors and I felt like I got 80% of the way there but that 20% I don't love it and kind of hitting that wall a bit and kind of happening upon like these like mini bunt mini brownie bunt pans at Williams Sonoma with my mom and my mom was just like why don't you just buy it and see what happens at the very worst you can just end up with an extra pans so thought about bunt cakes cuz they're they're very classic and almost old fashioned but in a very like quaint way how can i make these more exciting more fun, um, more timeless. And so started experimenting the next day. And I knew that I wanted to incorporate sweet rice flour as well, but not make it wholly mochi type Why dessert. did you know and that? So How did you know that? I felt like it added a nice, I don't want to say elasticity, because that just sounds weird, a nice like bounce in terms of the texture. So I wanted to create a moist, structured, and also slightly springy texture. And I knew that sweet rice flour had those qualities. And so by kind of combining that with regular all-purpose flour, I wonder if I could get some of those qualities without it becoming a mochi dessert.
0: It sounds like gem cakes were the the first step that was really intentional.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. I, I didn't realize that until you said it, but Yeah.
0: And look at what happens. So you make these cakes, you start making them in January. You forego a little mochi thing that you're doing. You, have you dropped that completely? I'm tabling it for now. Tabling yes. it for now. Yeah. <laughs> you, so you stumble upon this and I had them last week and for the first time, they're absolutely incredible. Should have been on your wait list ages and ages ago, but they're <laughs> really yummy and they're beautiful. I think they have the spirit of what people love in cupcakes. I personally hate cupcakes. That's my problem, right? But I understand what people mm. like in them, right? It's this little gift that's just yours and it's perfect all by itself and it's beautiful and it's usually colorful and you can eat the whole thing and you don't have to feel guilty about it because it's tiny. People love tiny things. And all yeah. that stuff that goes into a cupcake, which everybody, you know, so many people take for granted, but like someone said to me recently, wow, I've never given nearly as much of thought into a cupcake as you give into a <laughs> but but I can see a lot of that that joy, that happiness, that sense of this little thing is mine, and it's all mine, and you can't have it. And I think that that's probably a huge part of the draw in them.
3: Yeah, totally. That's a great way of putting it. It's a little package just for you, and I think with the size too, it's I would say it's smaller than a cupcake, and so it's it's really easy to try more than one. And I think that's important because I think with cupcakes, it'd feel like I have to commit to it or- A, cu- you know, a like- cupcake is too big of a commitment for you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> commitment issues. Um, but yeah. And like the visual, I wanted it to be visually appealing, fun to eat, fun to look at, a good product. And so I worked really hard on my cake base. I don't want the glazes to be the thing that carries the cake. I want my base to be able to stand alone and work well with the glazes, no matter what glaze I use. So that was a really important, established that foundation for me. It's a
0: delicious, tender, moist cake. You know, you gave it to me and I think you were a little worried that we weren't going to eat it until 12 hours later and you have nothing to worry about. It's <laughs> delicious 12 hours later too. Were they all the same cake base?
3: Yeah. So I have a chocolate cake base and a white vanilla cake base. I think that.
0: I like the chocolate. The chocolate was my favorite.
3: Yeah, just vary the glazes. And I think that was also part of my strategy. How can I work smarter, not harder necessarily? And so having a good cake base and being able to play around with a lot of different glazes and have a lot of variation, I think was something that felt right and felt smart business-wise too. So you know, it's an
0: incredibly smart decision, especially in New York City where space is at a premium. Every single thing that we do that adds to an extra ingredient we need to hang on to, extra space Mm -hmm. we need, all just adds up to making something not profitable. And if it's not profitable, then at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. why are you doing it? You're not just doing this for love, right? Mm -hmm. If you're just doing this for love, you'd make it for yourself, for your friends and for your neighbors, and then you call it a Mm -hmm. day. So I think that was a really smart call. It's very Mm -hmm. similar to the donuts that we just had. I'm pretty sure they're all the same donuts with different glazes on them. Exactly. Know, that makes them unique. And you still want to try all the different ones and you still have favorites, yeah. right? Like you're still mm-hmm. going to like one over the other, which is... Yeah, exactly. Is your style in the cakes? Is there something about you aesthetically that's in them?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think with the glazes, it felt like a good way for me to explore different ingredients. And so... I think part of my fear as a pastry chef was, okay, I do enjoy using Korean and Asian flavors, but I don't want to be boxed in as, oh, she only uses like Asian flavors, right? Mm -hmm. And that felt like a difficult thing to navigate. And so I felt like with gem cakes and the glazes, I had this like spark. I could use whatever glaze I want. If I want to put misukaru and maple almond in the same box like I can do that and I felt I found that very freeing as a pastry chef and so yeah I think like my style is definitely in the overall presentation and overall flavor profiles of these things because I'm not just an Asian pastry chef right like that's very important to me I can also use whatever ingredient I want and still do it well and I think that was an important learning thing for me too.
0: It kind of sounds to me like the discovery and the pursuit of the gem cakes actually helped you find who you are as a chef.
3: Yeah, I would totally agree. Yeah. So here we
0: are. You develop this new product. You've got a fan base, let's call them your fan base, that have been going to your <laughs> pop ups and purchasing your bakery boxes. You stopped doing the bakery boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Enough of this craziness. I'm tired of making 7,000 different products. It's nuts. I don't, you were crazy for doing it. I love you, but you were like, (laughs) already, I can't even imagine. You must've been covered in flour, trying to manage like X amount of recipes out of your house all the day, every day. It seems really daunting and a huge project. So now you narrow down your focus. You create these things. They're beautiful. You came up with a name, which I can totally see how you came up with the name, but was there anything special about the name that I don't know about?
3: So originally they were going to be called cute cakes because they're cute. The oh, cakes. gem cakes is way better than cute <laughs> cakes. Way yeah. Better. I wanted something that was like, that when people see it immediately associate as like gem cakes. And I felt like visually, especially when they're in a box and like different colors, like it almost reminds you of like jewels or gems. I also just really like the emoji, the gem emoji. <laughs> so a lot of potential there. And yeah, just, I wanted to name them something a bit unique.
0: Now you've got this product you believe in. It has a cute name. What do you do?
3: I, so I soft launched it in Columbus. Cause I knew that I had kind of a network there who was like curious about it. So that was kind of like a test run and, for New York, I think I think I started it with a giveaway on Instagram just drum up some interest. Social media is very exhausting for me, so if I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't. <laughs> but that's obviously the best way to reach people and I think with a giveaway and then I still can't believe when the New York Times reached out about like, somehow they like, had happened upon it and they wanted to interview me. Article And I think just being in that article really increased demand and increased just the breadth of people who were interested in the cakes. So it was like all very opportune in terms of timing, because that article came out mid-February, which is right kind of towards the beginning of when I dropped them.
0: So the New York Times really was the deciding factor.
3: Like I was drumming up interest for sure, but I think the New York Times like expedited that.
0: Yeah, like for sure.
3: Beyond what I could have done.
0: So you open up the Sunday Times. It was the Sunday Times or the Wednesday. I think it was the Wednesday. It was
3: Wednesday.
0: Wednesday. Oh, so yeah. it's Wednesday or Tuesday, late Tuesday night, and then you see this article
3: come out. What is that like? Honestly, I like cried. <laughs> I yeah, I had it cried out of joy and disbelief and everything. Just, <laughs> yeah, just because like. Literally a month and a half ago, I was sitting in Columbus, Ohio. I am so unhappy. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. And so things just change so quickly. And that's not to say everything I do is just going to turn to gold. But for some reason, like with this, it just, it was just so well received. And, and obviously the orders picked up and I had to institute kind of a newsletter and a wait list. But I think, I think that also showed me that there's so many people in my neighborhood in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, who want to buy these things because I was, I was scared when I came back, not being in Manhattan anymore would make, make me like less relevant, which looking back, okay, I didn't need to worry about that. But yeah, it just connected me with a lot of my neighbors, people in the area, obviously read, read the Times article and they were curious.
0: Isn't that an incredible thing? I think that the only thing that I actually miss about my retail bakery is the sense of community that was created around it. Yeah. You know, and that, that's actually one of those things that you can't anticipate necessarily, but it does yeah. really become one of the incredible benefits of yeah. doing it in the end, right? Yeah, So, totally. okay, so New York Times comes out, Clinton Hill comes to support support Gen Cakes. That's what happens. There yeah. so, were people coming from farther out or was it mostly just local?
3: Yeah, I mean, people would come in from Manhattan, from the Upper East Side. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so far. <laughs> it's like an hour commute. And then I would say my regulars, people in my area, which I felt very supported and definitely part of a community and just becoming a part of people's weekly routines. Really, really cool.
0: And so how many cakes are you making per week?
3: It has varied, but I kind of landed on about, I'd say like 32 to 35 per Pickup day, so I was doing like two pickup days a week, around like seventy boxes. Wow! Yeah, which felt like kind of like my limit because still one woman show right now.
0: You shared the recipe for gem cakes on was it Epicurious that you shared it on? How does that feel? Giving out your recipe to
3: the world. That was really scary because that I agreed to that actually before I started selling them in New York, so I was like. I was like, I don't know if this is the right call. Like, I don't know if if people know how to make it, that they'll not want to buy it. But I honestly didn't need to worry about that because I think the subset of people who are going to take the time to make it at home are very different than people who would regularly buy pastries from me. So True,
0: and they're um, also farther away, right? Because you can't can't service every state in the union. So obviously it lets you reach a larger group of people. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair. I don't think I would have given up my recipe. But hey, you know, it wasn't certainly wasn't the wrong choice. Since then, you've been doing a ton of food writing. How did that happen for you?
3: Last summer, I got a tip from a friend who works in food PR, and she's like, oh, Basic has an open pitch call right now. And I, I never really considered serious writing for food publications because I thought it was impossible to break into. I, it just felt very like a very insular world. And it's like, if you're in it, you're in it. If you if you want to get in, like, it's really hard and not many people can break in. I think it just started by pitching myself. I don't really have much experience here, but I would like to write on this. And for some reason, they took my pitch. And so it it actually took a while to get the ball really rolling because building your portfolio is very important and building that level of trust and dependability. It's a great way for me to be able to bridge my passions of writing and recipe development and food and food media. So it's it's been really, really rewarding. And currently considering what direction I want to go in terms of career, I think that's definitely on the table as well.
0: Do you have to commit?
3: I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure that out. But I'm learning that I do better when I'm focused on one thing or when I have a goal in mind.
0: Intention sure. for sure for sure. Yes. Intention is absolutely important, especially if you want it to be a significant success. Because at this point, I would imagine that you're at your gem cake max, right? You can't yeah. possibly do any more than where you're at right now. So if you have to grow, something has to change, right? Exactly. Yeah. So your goju jung, to say that right? Like because I don't even know yes. how to say that word. That is not a word in my vocabulary. Your goju jang <laughs> pasta went viral also, right? How does yeah. that feel? Now you've had uh, several things go viral on you, sweet and savory.
3: That was just very unexpected, honestly, because that was kind of born out of the pandemic. I would just cook random pastas at home in Ohio. And then when I came back to book for my friends, it was my first recipe for eater. I don't even know if people would be interested. Like I really enjoy eating it, but I was, I've was i been very surprised. People just really like that flavor profile. This spicy, a little hint of like sweet and like savory. So it, it feels really cool that oh, gochujang is able to be incorporated in pasta and people realizing that and enjoying that. So it's you know, cool. when I
0: listen to you and I hear your story, I mean, obviously I've known a little bit about your story to begin with, so it's not completely new. But when I listen to it, the thing that I'm that really is impressed upon me is that we all worry about how are we going to make our mark? And and what makes us special? And what are we going to do that's different than everyone else? But nothing, the answer that's nothing, you know, what we have that's different than anyone else is us. And so by you kind of trusting your instincts, and putting yourself out there on the plate, that's what you have to offer the world. You didn't invent pasta, I didn't invent cake, Th- these are not things that we can take any real ownership on. But at the end of the day, it's our take on them and what we like and being able to introduce the world to that, I think is kind of our superpower.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing that has stuck with me that you you shared with me when I called you in January and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have a lot to offer because I'm me, not because invented XYZ. I'm me and I'm special in that way and I can run with it.
0: So next thing you do is going to be filled with intent and planning
3: and purpose, right? That is the the plan. That is the intention. (laughs) I'm definitely in another transitional period, but it helps that I've been here before. And so it's not, there's still anxiety, but it's not as scary. And I know that things will turn out.
0: You know, not for nothing. For those of you who have not seen Joy's beautiful face yet, Joy has the baby face of a 19-year-old. I don't think she's exactly <laughs> 19, but Joy's very young. So when she talks about how long things are taking and you how it feels like forever, <laughs> I mean, you are you are that definition of an overnight success. It didn't take you 20 years of of toiling away in the back of a kitchen. And it all seems to have come from instinct, which is well maybe not i mean i don't want to i don't want to take away because the things that you had done in your life before certainly added up to giving you the ability to write or the the ability to sell yourself or to notice that something that you did was special
3: right yeah yeah, for sure. And definitely shaped by circumstance. Give, I don't want you to give
0: away too much of that because it's what you make of the circumstances, right? At the end of the day, a lot of people are presented with opportunities and they don't take them. And yes, certainly, <laughs> obviously, the New York Times serendipitously came at just the right time and just the right moment for you that really propelled you. I don't know if you know this. You know, I've been telling people that you're part of the podcast and part of the people, and you'd be amazed by the people who know who you are. You've already made a mark. And I'm really excited Mm. to see what comes next. Thank you. Appreciate that. (laughs) Joy, thank you so much. This was incredibly informative and certainly inspiring. And I have no doubt that lots of young people who are looking to break into this industry are going to be really inspired by your story. Thank you for sharing it.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. This was so fun.
2: This episode's
0: What I Wish I Knew comes from Sarah Wharton, an editor and recipe tester at Good Housekeeping.
1: What I wish I knew as a recipe developer starting out is that you need to pay attention so much to the timing. You know, I think there's a lot of emphasis on technique and flavors, and I didn't struggle with this as much as I did with timing each stage of cooking so that a home cook can reproduce it at home on Almost any equipment, you know, <laughs> you got to be able to have a gas range and an electric range or an induction and have it be not burnt or not raw for the home cook. So I wish I'd known that the, the reason that I would redevelop recipes or retest them was timing over flavor 80% of the time.
0: Living the Dream is a hospitality podcast produced by La de Descoffier, New York and Penny Stankowitz. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you enjoyed your time with us, please like, share, and review. Thanks to Sharon Frank, Jill Oren, Joy Cho, and Sarah Wharton. Today's tasting notes came from Fan Fan Donuts. Head to LDNY.org for more information on LDNY. Our theme song and audio bites were created by music supervisor and composer DJ Cherish the Love, and our logo was designed by Lauren Nysensen of Sugar and Script. We're on all social channels at Living the Dream LDNY Podcast, and you can check the show notes for links to LDNY and all of this episode's guests.